Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hey, it's Anthony Whitaker here, and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. I've always been fascinated with what makes people successful in any area of life. And as I'm a hairdresser, it's always made sense to be finding out what makes people successful in the hairdressing industry. Now, years before podcasting was a thing, I produced a collection of interviews called Unplugged, where I interviewed a range of people from the hairdressing industry. And one of them was a true hairdressing master, Mr. Kerry Warren, who Nicole Kidman describes as being the best hairdresser in the world. When I'm interviewing people these days, I very rarely talk a lot about their journey into hairdressing. But when I interviewed Kerry, I was intrigued to find out about his background and the journey of how he got to where he is today. He's been the man responsible for producing iconic hairstyles for a whole list of movies such as Eyes Wide Shut, The Stepford Wives, The Great Gatsby, Bewitched, Mrs. America, Grace of Monaco, Blade Runner, to name a few. And you would have seen his work on the world's biggest fashion catwalks and on the cover of leading fashion magazines and on the most high-profile celebrities from the world of music, fashion and entertainment. Today's podcast is an interview that was done in 2015, and Kerry is still very much active today. But what stood out most when talking to him eight years ago was his humility, his charm, and his insights into fashion and hair and beauty. I think he has a depth of knowledge that is something that is often missing today. Kerry's story and his life in general is an amazing journey of commitment, dedication and passion that I just know you're going to be inspired by. So without further ado, welcome Mr. Kerry Warren. Thank you very much, Anthony, and thank you for talking to me. It's <laughs> my pleasure. It's great to have you here. Right, so let's start at the beginning, um, because I think you've got an amazing story, your life story. I've uh, had the pleasure of interviewing you before, and I know a little bit about your background, and uh, have done some more research since we were last together. And I just think you have the most uh, fascinating life story. I will just sort of introduce it, and then let you flesh it out. I know that you were born in a place called Mount Barker, which is situated approximately 250 miles uh, south of Perth in Western Australia. And it's got a very small population there of uh, around 2,000 people. And for anyone who doesn't know, Perth is the most isolated city on the planet. And you were 250 miles or 400K from Perth, so that makes it extremely isolated. So, um, you know, I really want to go back to the beginning and start with your, your life story as to how you've turned into this hairdresser extraordinaire that works with some of the most uh, talented and creative people in the, in the world of fashion and, and, and movie uh, as a hairdresser. So over to you. Well, Anthony, I, I, <laughs> I think probably my first introduction really to hairdressing was my sister, Gloria. She was a hairdresser. So when I was about sort of, I guess, about nine, ten years old, I used to drop by the salon after school and go and sort of hang out. And I was intoxicated by the smell of perming lotion, nail polish remover. And to me, to this day, even though there are hardly any perming lotion smells around salons and things like this, even nail polish to me tells me glamour. There's something, it's about transformation, it's about glamour, and to me it was exciting. And to be able to do that to someone, to be able to transform someone, I think that I'm, you know, putting the pieces together in my mind, I think that's probably what got me interested in, in uh, hairdressing for sure. Okay, so... Before that, this, this place you've grown up in, which I'd never even heard of until I did some <laughs> research. But, you know, what, what was it like as a kid growing up in a, in a country town? When are we talking? 50s, 60s? 50s. I mean, what was that like growing up in an environment like that? Amazing. Amazing sense of freedom. Um, open space, obviously. Um, I mean, I'm the youngest of six kids. We had a pretty 
pretty easy sort of life, I guess. I guess. You know, there was no fear of, like, big city life or, or, or pressure of things. But, you know, I always felt like uh, I had to escape. And I don't know whether it was escape professionally or, or creatively or... Um, I just... We used to um, live near the... Where we lived on the main street was just near the town hall where they used to show... They used to have um, the pictures showing twice a week. Right. So, and I was absolutely fascinated with that. And I was sort of like fascinated with the way people looked in it. You know, I thought, you know, these people are born the most extraordinary looking creatures in the world. Yeah. Not realising that they probably went through hair and makeup, costume and lighting and, <laughs> and all the rest of the things. And I thought that everybody, including my sisters and brothers, should all be looking like these people. Right. Even yeah. though they were on a small, in a small country town. Yeah, exactly. Australia. But right. it's still, okay. to me, yeah. when I look back, they did look glamorous. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was, there was a sense of, there was a sense of, of care that was taken and I think it was of the time and I suppose what happens we all do look back at old photographs or family pictures or things and how incredibly well turned out people looked at yes. a certain period mm. now I think it was because they're going to have their photograph taken so they made an effort to brush their hair and mm. Put their best frock on. Yeah or, yeah, or or put their coat on or bound yeah. up or, or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, polish their shoes. Or, sure. You know, and I guess it's part of things, but I think people, when they went out in public, there was a certain sense of, and it wasn't about necessarily about money or finance or how rich or poor you were. It was about presenting yourself in the best way even if you went down to the town, town shopping or whatever. So, and I think that's very, very important. I think it's something that I sort of miss today. And I think it's always so inspiring when you go somewhere or you'll see someone walking down the street that looks immaculately turned out or, and it might be particularly your taste, but yeah. you think, oh it my made an effort. God, what yeah. an effort. And you do see certain older women doing that and you think, oh my God, the energy and the dedication that takes, yeah. that's absolutely admirable to me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So did, did you, as a kid, did you feel a bit like a fish out of water? Uh, well, I, I sort of, <laughs> funny enough, going to these movies kicked off a whole other thing in me as well. You know, I used to go to movies, I saw musicals, I saw Fred Astaire and Gene Rogers dancing on the, on the screen. I thought, you know, with my... Trying dancing? Why yeah. not? I heard that you, <laughs> you did have a, a, a period of time where you were really wanting to be an aspiring ballet dancer, yeah? Well, I, I studied, I studied well, the, only, the only dance classes in, in town were classical ballet. Yeah. Um, unbeknown to my father, I taught my mother into going to ballet class, which was on Saturday morning, which <laughs> I wasn't a very good dancer. So but, I, but I liked the idea. But I think it was a, a sort of a, a good discipline too, yeah, you yeah. know, um, because... I don't say I was, maybe I was an undisciplined child, mm. I think. Mm. Um, so this is real Billy Elliot stuff, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Well, it's, it's, it, I think it tends to sound like that now, but yeah. I don't think, it, and to me it was never, never, when I was a, a kid, it was just sort of something, you know, I've seen other people do it, why can't I do it? I didn't understand why it got so complex with everybody around me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't really understand because, you know, you're sort of at that age, you're not thinking anything sexual or anything like this. You, <laughs> you're just thinking, you know, I'd like to be able to do that. I'd yeah. like to leap across the room and spin in the air and fly upside down and do all those sort of things. You know what I mean? There's mm. like, part of the, I suppose, part of the circus mentality. Yeah. And, and I guess, in a way, it was... You know, I didn't think anything strange about it. I think everybody else around me was very sort of concerned. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose growing you know, up in a, in a country town with a, with, in, a, in Australia, in the 50s, there weren't a lot of uh, boys no. that wanted to do ballet in the class. Well, I, I, you know, I suppose not. They weren't. I was the yeah. only one. Yeah. And uh, my father found out by drinking in the pub and one of his mates come in and said, oh, your son's in the same class. <laughs> There were a few words said that evening yeah. <laughs> that F's going on in this house that he, he didn't know about. Da, 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 da. <laughs> but anyway, I carried, to keep, to appraise him, I said, okay, I'll stay with the ballet, 
but I had to do football practice in the afternoon. Right, so, so you, you did both? I did both. Right, Saturday okay. was a busy day for me. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and I was absolutely lousy at football anyway, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, so where did you first start Hairdressing. Uh, hairdressing, yeah. How, how, did that, how did that come about? Well, actually, see, my father was um, had racehorses on the um, on the country circuit mm. in Mount Barker. There's a town nearby called Albany, and anyone, any of them that were showed any promise, he would send to Perth to um, to a guy called Jimmy McNamara. Mm. Now, Jimmy McNamara was a trainer in Perth and had some quite successful hair um, horses going. His daughter, Kay McNamara, was married to a very well-known hairdresser in Perth called Ernest Grady. Yeah. So, put two and two together, my father said his kid's interested in doing some hairdressing. I don't think he should do it, but we give him a chance. And Jimmy said, I'll, Jimmy said he'll speak to his son-in-law. Yeah. So hence he did, and they thought they'll give me a try, and they could always send me back home and my sort of see how it went. So anyway, I went up to um, to meet Ernest. Um, I started work there, and six months later, my dad's trying to talk me into sort of like, when am I coming back home? And I said, no, I never didn't want to work in the bakery, and I was happy doing what I was doing, and. Um, and as we had, I remember this wonderful conversation. We were driving from Perth to back to Mount Barker, and my dad's looking straight ahead and obviously on the road and says, Kerry, why can't you do this once in your life, do something normal? <laughs> and I thought, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> no, but anyway, the, uh, so the, 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 there was no truth to the story that your father paid your wages to the No, time. no, but he did have to pay for my board. Right. Because okay. I wasn't making any money. Yeah, I lived yeah. in the city. Yeah. And I lived with his sister, who my aunt, Aunt Annie, who was absolutely gorgeous, yeah. lovely. So, so how long did you stay in, uh, in Perth? For five years, I actually, uh, from 17 to until I was 22, actually, yeah. um, I did my apprenticeship, which was five years in those days. Yeah. Um, all in the one cellar. All in one cellar, yeah. passed all my mm. exams. Mm. And then, towards the end, I was doing a lot of like charity things for, for uh, to raise money for um, disabled children and, and things like this. Uh, so I was doing hair shows, so, so to speak. But in created in in our own way using the girls from the salon as my models because I couldn't obviously afford sure. models yeah, or yeah. you know um, the industry was so small as you can imagine in Perth so it just sort of like all my girls I work work with they suddenly became my my girls to yeah that I turned into icons. So, so what what was the impetus for you to leave Perth and go to London? Um, I thought you know I've got to. I, I have to try. Um, my question was, would I go to Sydney? And I thought, you know what? Sydney's going to be there. Yeah. London might not always be there for me because yeah. of the, you know, and and I think every, I think every young person feels that, that they feel like, you don't feel like you can conquer the world, but you feel like you can deal with it. So what, how did, how did you, you make that transition? So you're in Perth, you've made that decision, you decide to move to London, was there any... Well, basic, basically, um, obviously I was doing apprenticeship, so yeah. I wasn't making a lot of money. Mm. And um, so we had a, a bunch of clients coming into the salon, and sort of from different walks of life, we had a lot of legal people, doctors, you know, quite across the board, but we also had some of our ladies of the night, Girls, right. which were the more fun, the more the more fun clients. Yeah. I, I, I like to say, so to speak. Anyway, um, there was this wonderful, wonderful lady called Dory Murray, um, who was the madam, and she used to sort of she used to be a hairdresser, so she was sort of quite keen on hairdressing and looks and things. And she was quite an extraordinary character herself. In those days, she sort of like, she had white, bleached white hair. And she used to wear a lot of white, I remember. A lot of white A-line shift dresses and things like this. 
And I suppose the closest thing I could say was probably like a Dusty Springfield look. Right. So she was quite, she loved her sort of elaborate sort of chignons and bouffant hairdos and things like this. Um, and she, I got into doing her hair for her because she was looking at my work and seeing what I was doing for these ex, sort of hair shows and things like this. And I was fascinated with her because she had the most beautiful hair pieces I'd ever seen. Okay. And that's what, before I was allowed to touch anybody's hair in the salon, I was given the job of washing everybody's hair pieces and cleaning them and getting them ready. Because obviously, in those days, if basically, most women had a wig wardrobe. Right. Which I think is one thing that's absolutely missing these days. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, to, have that to have an instant chignon sitting in the cupboard where yeah. you've got to suddenly go to a cocktail party, yeah. Fantastic. Put it on and go. You know, I don't think there's enough of, I, I, I don't think there's, uh, people have enough flamboyancy about the hair these days. I think mm. it's also all become a little bit more normal and sort of like they want it to look as real, like gluing in extensions. Why not put on half a wig? Mm. It's easier. Take it off that night. You know, mm. you don't have to sleep with someone else's hair on, on yeah. their head. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. You get to have the look and have you know, the mileage from it and look as great the next day because you've taken it off and haven't slept in it, you yeah, know. Yeah. Anyway, um, so what happened is Dory said to me, would I like to go over to her places of work, after work, and give the girls a sort of comb out and a bit of a buff up and sort of sort of resurrect them from the day's job, I guess. <laughs> so I, I did. And, yeah. and with that money, you know, the girls paid me cash with that money, I put aside and got my fare to be able to come to London. Okay, fantastic. So, so what year was that when you arrived in London? 1972. And where did you start working then? I went for a job in Knightsbridge, and it was like a terrible place. Uh, and I thought, oh God, do I really, you know, this is not what London's about for me. You know, it was never, it was always a bit like, oh God, you know, I didn't really want to be in it. It's sort of like a salon that wasn't, happening and at that point someone said oh you know they said oh you're Australian this is a Australian guy working at um, Elizabeth Arden on Bond Street I thought if he can get a job I should be able to get a job mm. probably some fantastic hairdresser here this kid thinking you know he could do it I could do it so I went in for an interview got the job and from my little portfolio I had from, a, from Perth from newspaper clippings from shows I'd done, newspaper stuff and mm. shoots I'd done in Australia, probably about four pages thick of, of, of stuff. Um, I got the job and the following week I had to do uh, the hair for a fashion show within the, within the they, um, Elizabeth Arden at that time was on Bond Street. It's where the Louis Vuitton shop is now on Bond Street. Right. And it was um, like five floors of beauty. So And they had a clothing clothing place in the front, you know, selling dresses and, and all this without makeup and perfumery. So um, they had a fashion show and they said, right, you're doing the hair for it. So I did. I'm sort of a bit nervous, but, you know, I'd done my hair shows, so I thought, you know, I know what I'm doing. So I did, and everyone sort of thought it was fantastic. And you're 22 or something now? Yes. 22, yeah. And then at that point, um, they were doing some ads for some makeup for Liz Without Makeup in... Um, in London, they said, you know, could you do the hair for the for the photo shoot? So it was my first, I, I guess, London photo shoot. You know, I had I'd done sort of bits and pieces where I'd done someone's hair in a salon in Australia and they'd gone to the studio and been photographed. This was actually in a studio and I was actually doing the hair. Mm. And it was done for Hairdresser's Journal. And when the Hairdresser's Journal came come out, it's written across it, the look that is London. Oh God, I've only been here a bloody couple of weeks. <laughs> so, but anyway, that's, I'm not going to say anything. That's yeah. absolutely fine. From that, the beauty editor at Vogue, whose name was Felicity Clark at the time, saw it and decided to book myself, the makeup artist, and the model to recreate the look with David Bailey for a Vogue cover. And that was 1972. So you've literally just got off the plane and all of a sudden, within a period of what, six months? Or less, uh, probably about yeah, probably about twelve months, I suppose. Okay, you know, you're yeah. doing a you're doing a Vogue cover with David Bailey, mm -hmm. fantastic. 
And and that, and what what happened then? So you then decided no, 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 this no, is what you want to do. You well, yeah, that. I thought I was fantastic. I did it like this, but not realizing that you know once you've done it, and it's sort of you know once it goes off the newsstand, you're sort of no longer yeah. flavor of the month sort yeah. of thing. So it's sort of you know then I decided this is this editorial career that I wanted to pursue. So I did, and I sort of worked for a lot of various magazines. Not I didn't actually really do any more Vogue covers until about 1976 or 77, right. around about that time. I did a few shoots and things, but when I finished, anyway, I've, so, um, but working with Elizabeth Arden, I went on and then I decided, you know, I wasn't really quite fulfilled in what I was doing, so I went to work for Leonard, and he, he used to have a whole house that was just behind the American Embassy, and... Um, so I worked there. That's where I first met uh, John Frieda and a lot of other, you know, excellent hairdressers. And um, Leonard had a big, um, you know, a lot of his staff were out doing photo shoots and things. He was very much the man of the moment mm. in the 70s with an incredibly creative team like Daniel Galvin doing colour and you had Celine doing the most amazing hair and Oliver from uh, Leonard's doing hair and John and like amazing sort of people like a team of people so you're in a, an incredibly creative environment mm. which is in, only can be inspiring you sure. know it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's like anything it's, it's like working with with talented people that inspire you you can only learn you know I mean unless you've got blindfolded and <laughs> you know then you don't Obviously, you wouldn't learn anything, but you know, you you really need that to be walking around with blinkers on, not to learn, sort of thing. Yeah. And it was a great learning experience. Um, so this sort of period of time was running parallel to the sort of Sassoon explosion of hairdressing well, 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 in London Sassoon, at the same time. Wasn't it? Then it was a big hit. So Sassoon was more sixties, right? You know, and and now we're talking seventies. Okay. You know. Um, and it's all more like Sandra Rhodes and all those sort of looks. You sort of like Grace Coddington's sort of 70s look with all the hennaed hair that's all frizzed out and things. That was all Leonard. Right. You know, quite extraordinary um, looks, yeah. you know, what was going on. So who were the photographers you were working with in this, um, this Well, there was obviously Bailey, um, Terence Donovan. I worked a few times with Duffy. Um they were the sort of London-based photographers. Mm. Um, then when I started working for much more for Vogue, there was pl those guys plus some, uh, Norman Parkinson. Was, I did quite a bit with him in the early 70s as well. And then um, like Toscani and Alex Shatlin and uh, um, Fabrizio Ferri and... Oh, but it, I mean, it goes on and on and on and on, and it's, it's sort of endless. So, because suddenly I got taken under under the into Vogue and taken under their wing and worked with them solidly for about four or five years. Mm. You know, sort of nearly every, four days a week, so you nearly like, every week. Really, so you were yeah. like the resident Vogue. Oh, no, not I wouldn't have said rhythm, but basically I wasn't in the salon. I was right. I was there promoting. And at that point, I was working. I'd working for Moulton Brown. Yeah, I'd left. Left Leonard's, went back for a little stint. I got enticed back to Arden. Yeah. Um, and then I, when I went back, I realised you know, this is the wrong move. And then I went and met with um, Harvey Collis, who owned Bolton Brown, mm. and got the job. And then had to retrain again from retraining with Leonard and then retraining again with Moulton Brown because Moulton Brown was a whole other realm of hairdressing in, the, in those days it was um, incredibly creative um, but with a natural force so sort of not they didn't want to use hair dryers they, mm. they used just drying the hair naturally with your hands you know it was a whole other sort of method and which was in, invaluable for me for what I went to was going to which I didn't know at the time I was going to go on and do film sure. but to how to do hair naturally is actually quite beneficial because I'd learned the artifice. Not that I was great at it, but I, I, I learned how to construct and how to deconstruct. Mm. But to actually work with hair in its raw, natural form is actually quite something else mm. entirely, you know, and, not, and to know when to pull back and not when to go to take too much, especially 
Like, for instance, I'm probably leaping ahead a bit here. No, but no, when, no, you're no, work, when you're working for film and things, so suddenly, you know, if someone's meant to have crawled out of the shower and fallen asleep sort of thing, mm. how does that hair look? It, what is it saying? And, and I think this, this, this is... This is where it comes into character building. And what is not totally dissimilar to photo, photographic shoots is like, what are you saying to the public that are watching? Mm. You know, if the hair wakes up and the hair's done and she's got full makeup on, it's like, it's not believable. Mm. You know, if the hair looks sort of slightly must and, you know, sort of undone and sort of free form, it sort of, it tells the story without actually saying yeah. anything. Yeah. You so know what did, I mean? did you work behind the chair there in Moulton Brown? Doing yes, yeah, yeah. So you did columns but, at the column of clients? Yes, yeah. yeah. Plus, when I was in the salon. Doing session yeah, work. Yeah, but doing a lot of that. session work and yeah. stuff like this, which was fantastic. Okay. I think a lot of passion has gone out of hairdressing in some sense, you know mm. what I mean? And I don't know whether it's because of... I don't know, maybe, maybe it's because of... The instantaneous of a blow dry bar, you can walk in and just have your hair done, and sort of mm. you probably wouldn't even know that person's name that's done your hair or or have an affiliation with them. I think, and I think it's quite a personal thing. You're touching someone, you're you're in someone's space, mm. and I think it's important to to know them, to even before you start the hair, to talk to them, to consult with them, to sort of see what sort of person you're dealing with. You know. Um, you know, it's a different situation if it's a model or an actress and you're putting them into a character or into a mode of something. But if you're cutting someone's hair off or changing their colour and things, I think it's in, quite important to know as much as you can, or as much as they allow you to know mm. about them. Yeah. So yeah. you can actually make them feel as good as they can possibly feel. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're there for. We're there to enhance. We're there to... To elevate it, you know mm. what I mean. You know, you don't go, you don't want to go to the hairdresser and come and feeling worse than you when yeah. you walked in. It's the ideal, it's the ideal you know, situation. You know, yeah. It's a bit far. <laughs> yeah. So, so then you 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 left London. You went to New York for a period of time, didn't you? So, so when I went in the sort of in the in the late in the late seventies. Um, I decided, you know, I was going into New York at this point. You know, I was doing a lot of editorial. I was going into New York to do um, various shoots and things. And I decided that I'll give it a go. So I packed my bags, off I go to New York, and um, I stayed there for 14 years, yeah. you know. So, and, so was that seen as the mecca for you at the time? To, oh, to yeah, I, I, think it was very, I, I think it was very important for me because it also sort of, like I've sort of mentioned before, I think the discipline of New York. Yeah was very, very important for me mm. because, you know, I was sort of used to London where everything's a little bit more, in a way, a little bit more laid back at the time, a little bit more, um, you know, easier, so to speak, because there wasn't, I guess, I guess what changes the balance is the money, mm. you know, and like in New York, they, they're paying X amount, they turn, you turn up, you perform. Mm. Sort of like London, there's very little cash involved, especially in the 70s, there was yeah. even less. Yeah. You know, so it was a little bit more easier, mm. in a sense. And I think what it did is it taught me a lot of discipline, professionalism, and, um, yeah, and, 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 and led me to, to I think, to let me to grow as a hairdresser, but using, going back, learning all the techniques that I even learned at... Um, a technical college, and it wasn't called TAFE in those days in mm. Australia, it was called uh, Technical College, and I went to the one in, in Perth called Mount Lawley Technical College, and being forced to do finger waves, and I think, God, what are these women doing? I'm never going to use these. Cut to every day on Gatsby, every finger wave I did, I thought of those teachers, yeah. and being wrapped across the knuckles, not doing them properly until I got them correct, I thought, I'll show you. I can do it now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One of the things that's coming across, you know, as you talk about your journey, is you've taken every opportunity really to learn and evolve and uh, and to become better at what you do. You're very. Sort but of, I think that's what I think that's what that's I think that's what life's about. Is, yeah. I, I mean, to me, it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I I never I never feel complacent. Um, I'm always wanting to learn, and I want learn something new and I've sort of 
I had this sort of a bit, some sort of joke, but it's not really a joke. They think it's a joke, but I'm sort of actually quite serious about it. You know, so we're going to a salon, guys. It's so, so what's new? What's happening? I said, I want you to show me something new. I want you to inspire me. I want mm. you. I want. I need to be inspired. Do you still go into salons? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think it's great to see what. But you don't do clients in the salon. No, 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 right. no, no, okay. no, no, no. I don't think they'd want me in there. Yeah. <laughs> but you have an affiliation with John Frieda. So tell I, me, tell I, me about I, that. I work. I have a, a contract with the with uh, the John Frieda products. Right. Okay. And um, I work very closely. With them on when they're developing new products and uh, testing them and and things for them, um, I do a lot of promotional stuff for them. Um, and John and and the product company are two separate divisions. Yeah. But whenever I'm doing shows or or whatever, I will go to the salon and get a whole bunch of kids to come and help me, and then we'll right. do like a training evenings. Mm. So, Bob, this is how it's going to work. This is what I want to achieve. Mm. This is how we're going to do the show mm. um, and things. So it's like a little bit and quite I, – I go and do um, – sort of little workshops with them sometimes because mm. they're incredibly helpful to me. I will sort of give back what knowledge I have. Mm. Um, I did one quite recently, the importance of hair colour in film, mm. which, you know, they were sort of, what in the hell is this about, yeah. you know? And I basically um, showed, showed them how important it is to create either class structure personalities and things with the, with the shades of hair color mm. and things that you can use on a person mm. you know whether they're downtrodden whether high maintenance whether they're a, they're a sort of like a real sort of full-on sort of hair victim sure. yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean yeah, yeah. all those things portray in hair color mm. you know yeah. what I mean whether the, the woman is going to be in there having a, a roots done a highlights done every six weeks or mm. whether she's a sort of like a girl that maybe makes it every six months mm. You know, yeah, or whatever. You yeah. know, and these these are all important when you when you're building characters for film. Sure. So know? just before we get back into the film thing for a minute, just back to the New York thing for a second. Mm -hmm. um, so you were there for 14 years. Mm -hmm. Was it? I mean, obviously, 14 years is a long time. Obviously, it did sort of satisfy you or fulfil your needs at the time. What What was it you were doing there? Was it mostly editorial work, more advertising, more editorial? editorial? A lot of advertising. I made. I made. A lot of money there. Good on you. Nice. I know. I noticed you paused before you said it. There's nothing wrong with making some money. You know, if you're good at what you do. You should make money. Um, so. And uh, is, I, is that where you started film in New York? Is that your first introduction yes, to yeah, film? Yes. Yeah. My, my first introduction to, to film is is I did a movie with Tony Scott. Right. Um, and what had happened is I was working with, very closely with a makeup artist who was started he was started designing make up the film and he used to cross over and do hair and makeup and he worked a lot with Tony and uh, there was this job in Mexico and apparently the girl that was doing the hair on the job was wasn't fulfilling her position right and uh, he, I got a call in the middle of the night I was in Italy shooting Italian Vogue and I remember this the phone going, it's before mobile days, obviously, and he said, listen, I need you to get to Mexico on Monday to work on this film. Can you do it? And I went, Ugh. He said, we need to know now. And he said, he said, I don't know why you're, what, why you're contemplating. Have you done a film? I said, no. He said, well, so what, what are you, it's a learning curve. And I thought, all right, it is a learning curve, I mm. guess, you know. If it doesn't work out, I can always go home. Yeah. <laughs> it's always, yeah. it's all, always the sanctuary, you know. Yeah. Mount Barker was always going to be there for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and anyway, so um, I went back to New York, packed up, went to Mexico, and met at the time Kevin Costner, Anthony Quinn, and Madeline Stowe. And I was doing the whole three of them for the film. It was a movie called Revenge. It was all about sort of politics, gangsters, prostitution. Mm. which I can identify with, obviously, <laughs> after my experiences. Um, and, yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience. Great working with Tony. I really, I really love working with him. And I did a few commercials with him after that mm. as well. I never did another movie with him, which is unfortunate. Um, but I really, really enjoyed working with him. Yeah. Um, what, what, what was the big difference between 
Because it, up until this point, you've been doing a lot of session work. Um, well, he, what's I, the big difference between session work and film work? Well, well there wasn't a lot for me right. um, because basically, obviously, to do the boys' hair was pretty, I mean, in a way, straightforward. Anthony Quinn had to look like a diplomat, and but uh, sort of a gangster diplomat sort yeah. of thing. Um, Kevin had to look sort of normal. He's ex-army, helicopter pilot, you know, sort mm. of, so it was pretty normal. Madeline, he wanted to... She was like a trophy wife, and he wanted her to look like a Helmut Newton girl, mm. which is perfect. I love mm. Helmut Newton girls. Yeah. You know, who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've got to be crazy not to. <laughs> anyway, um, so I turned her, I, so I went and he said, you know, I want to, you know, like this Helmut Newton girl. You know, like this, so I, the wave over the eye and I'm sort of mm. under... She, she looks fucking hot. So it's good. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. carry on. Yeah. So and, was that, and then you continued just doing films, or did you? No, no, it was no, 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 no. That, was it. That, that was it. I went back to my editorial life, right. and then one of the boys on it that was working on it, one of the um, second assistants, got another movie that was to be set in Argentina, and it was. Um, it was about sort of white slavery mm. in the 20s. Mm. So it was my first 20s movie, so to speak. And it was a movie called Naked Tango. And it was all about Tango palaces, white slave, white traffic, trafficking um, young girls from Eastern Europe into prostitution in Argentina. Um, and it was the same scriptwriter that wrote Kiss of the Spider Woman. It was a guy called Leonard Schrader, and he directed mm. it as well. Mm. And uh, it was, I, I think, a lovely—not a lovely story, an interesting story. Yeah. Um, but my father was the best critic on that because after he'd seen *Revenge* and *Naked Tango*, he said to me, "Why can't you do something romantic? Because all <laughs> these women are being abused." And <laughs> I'm thinking maybe I did something. Something happened in my childhood I wasn't quite aware yeah, of. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, but. Uh, Anyway, no, so that was my first attempt at 20s, which mm. I think looked okay. And so, you know, I sort of, I was going through my uh, archives recently and I, I found an old um, photo layout of the looks. Mm. And I thought, it doesn't look too bad. I'm mm. not too embarrassed about it. Mm. So ever late, very, very late night TV, it still comes up now and again. Yeah, yeah. Because Hedra yeah. said to me, I saw that movie you did. And I did this sort of quite extreme little Louise books prop for our leading lady. And everybody else had finger waves. Mm. But she was the only girl that had straight hair because I wanted her to make her to look more modern than the other girls, sure. so to speak. What, what are some of the other movies you've, you've worked on? Ah, right. Down memory lane now. Well, I've... Um, Eyes Wide Shut. With Stanley um, Kubrick. Yes. Yeah. That must have been amazing. It was we shot for two years. Yeah, two years. In two years, and it was. Um, and is that the first time you worked with Nicole Kidman? Yes, first right. time. First time I worked with Nicole and Tom, and uh, it was it was quite interesting um, because before I was going to do the tests and things like this, um, Stanley was saying to me. You know, I want to see all that hair. I want to see all those red curls. I want, that's what I want. I want to see those red curls. I need, I need you know, like this. And I said, fine, okay. And I'm thinking, is he really looking at the face or is he looking at the hair? Now, this is an incredibly intelligent intellectual director I'm working with. So I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of like, not tiptoeing, but I'm thinking, he knows much more about film than I will ever know. Yeah. You know? And then it, we, we did it, and he's great, great, great. He was happy with everything. And I said, Stanley, can I just show you one thing? He said, what's that? I said, just look at this. And I just took Nicole's hair with my hands, twisted it, and put one pin in it. And I said, look at her neck and her jaw. He said, oh, my God, I know what you're talking about. Suddenly you saw this skin, this beautiful porcelain skin mm. and neck, and it just heightened and exaggerated everything. And I said, to me... It's more beautiful than a lot of the hair sometimes. It's massive red curly hair. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we pretty much went through through the whole film. Okay. There's scenes, obviously, with a couple of scenes with it down, but pretty yeah. much even 
bedroom scenes pinned up in one way, random way or whatever. Yeah, and that was two years in the filming. Mm. Right, okay. Yeah. That's intense. I never thought I'd ever work again. I thought right. people would think I'm dead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that is obviously a downside you of know, film so, as opposed yeah, to editorial, you, isn't it? You've moved yourself you disappear. Out of, you, you, yeah. You've moved yourself off the, uh, off, off the radar, so, yeah. so to speak. But, uh, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a lovely experience. And also, I was, I was very flattered because, you know, he'd worked with people like Leonard and people like that before doing film, because Leonard did all the hair for um, Barry Lyndon and all those wonderful movies he had done. So I was very flattered that I was put into that, mm. well, I wouldn't say that category, because I think that would be sort of assumption, but to be thought of that I had, that he, I was getting to where he wanted to, to, to go as well, you mm. know. I think that was, was very nice. So that was my first introduction to Nicole. And from then on, I went to do another movie. I went, I actually, after, straight after that, I went to Sydney, which was, I think, where I where first met you, yeah. where I did Mission Impossible 2. Right, okay. And with Tom and Tandy Newton. Mm. And that was all shot in most, mostly Sydney. And um, then I, uh, from that, Nicole asked me to do a movie, and it's actually one of my favourite hair I've ever done on her. It's a movie called The Others. Right, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, which mm. was all shot in Spain, mm. on, on stage, in, in in August, in Madrid. It was as hot as hell, and because it's meant to be the, the um, Channel Islands, and it's mm. all wintry and dark and grey and da 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 like this. And um, anyway... It was quite interesting because the director, who was incredibly talented, Alejandro Menaba, was a wonderfully. He wrote the script. He learned to speak English to direct the film in English, and uh, he composed the music. I mean, it's talk about genius mm. levels. Fantastic. And but he foresaw the character as sort of quite Victorian, sort of like with red hair and chignon and things like this. And because you haven't seen the movie, you know how it works. I said, don't you think that's going to give the game away a bit? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you've got Victorian hair and everything. They're all meant to be in this Victorian house, you know. And it's not 1900. Why don't we sort of put a spin on? So I gave a, a sort of like, almost like a 1930s sort of look. Right. with a wave and sort of here and sort of and took the red of the head and sort of almost made it a little bit more neutral so it looked sort of a bit colourless yeah so you, you, your role doing hair for films is very much about developing a character mm. yeah absolutely right yeah so it sort of says something without saying the dialogue basically yeah. but it's but it's like but when you look at someone don't you think like any hairdresser looks at someone and looks at their hair and it tells you a story about that person. Yeah, at some level, I, but I don't I, think a lot of people are aware of it. I don't think they even I, think I, of it. They don't think of it, yeah. but it happens. And I think even if something's quite shocking, I remember this scenario once. I was sitting, it was, I was in Ireland and there was this lady sitting at the bus shelter and she'd just come from the salon and she'd had this lavender rinse and her little perm all done sort of sitting there all perfect I don't know, she looked fantastic by the way she's sitting there absolutely perfect this young girl goes by on a bicycle with purple hair and she looks at her with such disdain thinking oh my god this little punk kid and I'm thinking who's the outrageous one here mm. this lady with the lavender at the bus stop yeah. or the one with the purple on the bike yeah exactly I think they're both the same level yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> and extremity yeah, yeah. because <laughs> naturally has lavender hair yeah. and she's looking at her like like this and it was such a wonderful moment mm. you know thing again and so extremes but basically they were both extreme mm. and it wasn't like she wasn't looking as a youth thing. It was the hair colour. Yeah. You, and to that saying so much about someone, I think, she thought she was absolutely normal. Yeah. <laughs> do you, what do you prefer, film or, or, or session work? I enjoy both. I, you, you know, the thing is, I think I sort of, 
I think with film you have to please many more people. With fashion, it's you're pleasing less people. You you've got a, a you need to have the producers and the money and the actors and the DOPs and the directors and mm. the costume designers all to please you. You're basically pleasing the photographer and the editors and things. So so so, so you have a lot less people to keep happy, so to so to speak. Um, I think what I enjoy about both is creating the characters. So. To me, what I enjoy about film is creating the characters, obviously. Mm. And once I've established them, the, ma the maintenance is a tough one for me to do. Okay. I can do it. So the continuity. Yeah, the continuity, the, the, the doing it the same every day. Yeah. Um, you know, whether you're in the, like I did a movie called Australia in the middle of the outback with Baz, mm. and to do, to take the red dust out of the hair and put it back in every day, you know, right, so like, you know, it's like, oh God, here we go, and had little dust machine, a little um, dust machine sort of winding this red earth into the hair so it looked like it was, you know, because obviously you can't expect people to sleep with all that sure. stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know? I, I did read somewhere that um, someone said about you the reason you were so successful was because you were so quick. Is that something that you're renowned for? That you can really just get in there and get a look done and out of there? I mean, obviously they like that. I mean, you know, these things, there's a lot of money being spent by the minute. Um, um, I mean, is that... Is well, I, I think I... The thing is, I think speed comes with having to do hair for shows. Yeah. You know, fashion shows, you know, you've got 20, sometimes 20, 25 girls to get ready mm. and you have a team with you, but then it's your responsibility that it all looks finished and polished and things like this they can do all the, a lot of the groundwork for mm. you um, but I think it's very important that you um, and I always think hair can be overworked and I think the more you do to the hair sometimes the worse it can get mm -hmm. and also I think you know unless they're meant to look like they've just walked out of a salon hair shouldn't really be overworked Mm. In essence, the script calls for, like, uh, she's a multimillionaire and has her hair done every day, you know, and then the character would be something with a hairdo that's done every day, don't touch me, sort of yeah. look. Um, I think there should be a sort of a realness to it, and I think that realness can only happen if it's not laboured. Mm. And that's the way I, I work with it. You know, I'll do all my background work but then I'll sort of I'll basically in a sense once I've finished getting the hair to the, the state I need it to be I'll probably quite often dress it with my hands yeah I don't use brushes or combs or anything mm. you know to get it to that look where it looks like maybe you know it looks real yeah. in a sense rather than too manufactured because I think I have this I also have this complex that I can do hair that's too done all the time, so I'm always conscious that I, how can I make that look less done? Mm. That's uh, something I fight within myself. Yeah, yeah. A lot of young hairdressers, hopefully listening to this, you know, might aspire to work more in the in the session work world or indeed movies. What what, what core bit of advice would you give them? Research. Research. Re research, I think, is is the best to, you know, I, I mean, um, even in fashion and things like this, it keeps reverting back. We keep on looking at different periods, different decades, different things. I think we've been through the 20th century about 10 times. Like mm. a friend of mine said to yeah. me, you've done this enough times, you should be able to get it right by now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's sort of like, how many times can we do 60s? How many go? But it is, it, it's, it's very important. I just did a movie recently called Grace of Monaco, mm. um, which I had to do 60s and emulate Alexandre de Paris, who's one of the greatest hairdressers. Mm. And we filmed in France. I was as nervous as hell. I thought, my God, these French, these French people are not going to let me out of here alive. And copying one of their icons. Oh, I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. Hey, that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. But um, anyway, it's very important to research and mm. what, you, what you do and then take that and put it into what you're working with. Mm. You know, obviously I was doing my look on Nicole, but I was emulating what he had done on Grace Kelly or Grace Princess Grace. Um, 
the thing is, and the director was very clever, he said, you know, I don't want you to copy it hair for hair. I want you to take that as the inspiration and put it into mm. our go, in which is, I think, the correct way to do yeah, So Because there's different balances, different mm. facial proportions and different things. And also, you know, what looked sort of appropriate at one period doesn't necessarily look totally appropriate now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even though the costumes and the times, it's all set in the things, you know, suddenly, you know, if you come up with a sort of 18-inch towering hairdo, it can look quite sort of strange, you know. Do you you have a favourite era, favourite decade? I used to. Hmm. It was 20s, but I think I got it out of my system. Right. Gatsby. <laughs> Gatsby. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I do. I, I, I do. Uh, I, I like all. I like all periods. You know. I, I mean, I think it's great to get your teeth into things and, and sort of push your sleeves up and really get to the nitty gritty of it. Yeah. And I think that's what's exciting because that's what keeps it interesting. Because if you're constantly staying on one level and one and one train of thought. I think you can must get incredibly bored. Mm. I mean, I've never done that, so mm. I wouldn't. I, I, I would think, mm, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like. To, I, I like to sort of throw it in the mix, yeah. so to speak. I, I know sometimes you work. You 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 design the look for the film. Uh, and then you assemble a team of people because you physically can't do everyone on the set. Of course, of course. Uh, is there a, any particular frustration that you have of dealing with young hairdressers now who get on the set to do hair? Is there any sort of common thing that you just wish that people today would, would you know? I think enthusiasm. Enthusiasm? Yeah. So they lack enthusiasm? Yeah, I think a lot of people lack enthusiasm. And, and I, I quite often thought maybe I'm intimidating I don't think so. Um, you know, I'm not one of those people you can't come and ask questions to. Mm. I'm happy to teach. I'm happy to give people knowledge. I'm not. I'm not tr- playing my cards close to my chest. I'm, I mean, I'm. I'm more than happy to give information, and um, and I, I, I think it's the enthusiasm that I find lacking in a lot today, mm. which I think to me. We're in a great, great industry. We're a very, very privileged industry. So that we can have a wonderful careers, wonderful life, and and do some amazing things, and travel, and mm. and do all these extraordinary things. You know, yeah, with a hairbrush. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know, hey, a lot of people, a lot of people, you know, yeah, can't do that. Yeah. Do, you, do you ever wish you'd done anything else? What being a dancer? <laughs> no, no, no. Besides dancer. I don't know. I'm still learning hairdressing, so okay. I don't. I need to. I need to get really comfortable with the right. I've had enough of this, and then move on. Yeah. Um, so you've been doing it for how many years? Fifty, fifty plus years. Well, hang on. I, I, maybe I, I, maybe I, I, I'll I, age you a little bit too much. No, I'm coming up. To, I'm coming up to my fiftieth year. You're coming up to your fiftieth year. Yeah. You've worked on some of the biggest films in in, in the last fifty years. Mm-hmm. You've worked well, on all the top magazines. You've worked with all the best photographers, all the best models. And you're still learning hairdressing. Yeah. It's a great attitude. Yeah, it's a fantastic attitude. Is there ever anything, has, has anyone, one person ever said something to you in life, anybody, that had a particular impact on you? Is there any statement, any, any sort of you know, thought that runs through you that sort of sits at your core as that is really important to hang on to? Um... There's a few things actually. There's a few things that it's keep me going, keep me inspired, so to speak. Um, when I was a kid at Ernest's salon in um, in Perth, there was this quite tough hairdresser who was working in the salon, and uh, I was, I think, it was like within my first few weeks of hairdressing anyway. And she was doing a chignon and things. And I was quite nervous. I was handing up all, like, pins to her. And I'd obviously had the incorrect pin for what she wanted. So she mm. knocked it out of my hands and said, how do you make more money on the street than you have a hairdressing salon? So every sort of 
Shin Young, I do. I hope she. I hope she's still alive, and I hope she sees it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that that that, that gives me the strength. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so every every Shin Young in, in uh, Princess Grace has said, "I hope." I felt like I hope you're looking at this. <laughs> Carol, what's her name? <laughs> uh, you probably feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, with, with people sort of calling you exceptional, um, and I have well, asked. It wouldn't. Yeah. I've asked other people the same question when I've interviewed them on previous interviews. Um, if there was one thing that, that made you exceptional at what you do, because you must be exceptional uh, because of what you've achieved and continue to achieve, what, what would that attribute, what would that you know, characteristic, what would that personality trait be? Well, um, I, I have to go back to passion, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I really, really enjoy. I enjoy those moments when I get up and go to work. I enjoy the the excitement of doing something or having to stretch my imagination, having to do some research or, you know, uh, I'm being involved. And I, and I think in the industry we're in, I think it it keep it gives you a youthful outlook on life. And I find mm. that's important as well, you know, to understand what's coming through from the younger hairdressers as well, you know, and, and basically, hopefully be inspired by it. I'm, I'm looking for people to inspire me the whole time because I love to be inspired, mm. you know. And it doesn't necessarily have to be hairdressing. It can be fashion. It can be film. It can be photography. It can be a million things. You're part of, you're part of a, a core. I've always always said that the hair is a great accessory you know it's like having like the girls struggle to have the right handbag at the moment they'll spend their life savings on the latest handbag mm. or the biggest bag or whatever it might be but i think it's just as important to have hair that gives you confidence as well yeah you know i think it's a great accessory yeah yeah without a doubt without a doubt uh, what else do I want to wrap this up with? Uh, where, where, what does the future look like for you? Where will you be in the next 10 years? Do you, do you ever think about retiring? Or is that just... No, 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 no. I don't think about retiring. I, I, think, I think they're going to have to ship me out in a bag. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Kicking and screaming. I, uh, why retire? Mm. What, 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 what would you do? How excited am I going to be going to the studio if I'm yeah. not working? Yeah. You know, uh, I think that keeps me like I say, inspired and mm. excited and uh, also, you know, I haven't actually quite finished what I needed to start, start out to do yet. Mm. I've got a bit more to do and, and whether it's in, you know, I've always, always sort of, uh, you know, throughout my career done sort of little bits of workshops and things like this and, you know, and I, I think what is I think is important and I think is more rare as the years go on is the art and craft of actual hairdressing mm. and, and that's what I love to do is to dress hair you know people are obsessed with cut and blow dry and things like this and I think what what has got lost along the way is a lot of hairdressing yeah you know the actual art of transforming that piece of fiber into something that's totally different and I you don't have to do it turn into a joke you can turn into something beautiful or glamorous or sophisticated or sexy or whatever but I think the art of the word hairdressing, and there's a great, one of my greatest, greatest icons in hairdressing is a, a hairdresser called Sidney Gilarov. Mm. And he created all those looks for Hollywood in the, in the sort of 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, absolute genius. To me, he still inspires me every day. Mm. And the, the, the amazing thing is, he didn't have the products that we have today. Nothing. He didn't no. have the tools that we have today. The, no. the, the quality of the dryers, the no. brushes, no. etc., etc. Yeah, I, and, I those, and, and, and those things are magic. Yeah, exactly. You know, and uh, and I think you can only sort of take your head off to someone like that, and that is that is a true creative force. Yeah, I think and. Um, you know, we still use those looks today, mm. you know, um, whether it's a broken down version or, or a heightened version of what he did, mm. it's, it's still, they're still relevant. Yeah. And we're talking nearly a hundred years ago. Mm. You know, well, I mean, quite extraordinary. Mm. So your, your little bit of advice before where you were talking about, you know, as a kid, 
at, at technical college being taught finger waves. Yeah. It's like it's, everything, it's, it's you need to learn everything. Yeah, yeah. It's a craft. It's a craft. And you know, that will take you. And if you want to work on film, yeah. and suddenly you're doing something, and it doesn't have to be 1920s, you could be doing something that's 18th century or, or Egyptian or whatever. You need to know the art and mm. the craft of hairdressing, I think. Mm. And I think it's very... It's great to be able to just tap into it. It's, it's, it's sort of like when, when you think of your ability before I ever worked or handled a computer or something, the mind is a computer. You know, sort of like you give your water and a comb and you have to create. And I think that's actually pretty hard. Goal. And it teaches mm. you to manipulate hair mm. and what hair will do for you and what you can do for it. So, so, so what is your greatest tool that you have? Well, I've got to say a comb. Right. I thought you were going to say your hands. No. Right. A no, comb. comb. Okay. I think, I think that definitely, I mean, yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, well, one thing I want to ask you about is often people who are very, you know, successful and you've been very successful for many years. You've, you've sort of, you know, mixed with a lot of very successful models and photographers and uh, people in the movie business is you must be exposed to a lot of temptation. You know, it must be very easy for young hairdressers to go off the rails. And you've obviously um, managed to, to not go off the rails, or, or if you have, you've disguised it very well. Um, what, what advice the would you rails are down uh, there. Talk, talk, talk to me about that? What advice would you give to youngsters about that? Well, you know, the thing is, when I'm working in, in that industry, I know I'm there basically. I am there. We're in a service industry. Yeah. We're made there to make people look good and feel good. I've never ever assumed. I always think, oh God, when I'm staying in a lovely hotel at someone else's expenses and things like this, and I'm like, oh my God, you know, this is this is a dream. So you right? still feel like that? Oh now? yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, I just come back from somewhere and I was like, oh my God, I'm staying on the twenty-first floor. This really modern place. I thought. I've got to go home tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, cut to no. We're so, so there, there's a, there's a professional line. You are not those people. You don't have that lifestyle. You're not. You're not the person, the actor or the actress or the model or whatever. You're there, and it's it's, it's, it's so I always stand back. Is there, there's a professional line? I I think, and I've never really. I think what happens, some like some people I've known, they start to think they're part of that lifestyle, mm. you know. And I think that you're not. You're, mm. you're basically there. And is that their undoing? It can be. Right. I don't think it's necessarily all of their undoings, mm. but you know, it can be. I, I, I think you have to. I think you have to remember what you're doing because and also the next day I've got to get up and perform mm. so I couldn't sort of like go out on a on a night of champagne and whatever mm. and then get up and perform because yeah. it just doesn't happen that way how much of that humility um, work ethic uh, whatever the right word is um, would you put down to your um, your upbringing your country upbringing you know your you know the way you were brought up very I, I mean I've never been there but I can picture what it was like a simple existence with a lot of honesty and a lot of integrity and a lot of humility and, and, and that all, forms you as to who you are, doesn't it? Also, I, I think growing up in a family that ran a business, you know, you have to be, you have to produce. It's supply and demand. Yeah. And I think that's what I learned from my parents and my brothers and sisters and things like this you know the bread had to be delivered on time it had to be in the bakehouse it had to be there my dad was up at four in the morning to get everything ready so everything would be in the stores at nine mm. you know what I mean and that's basically if I'm doing something I'm always early for work I'm always hopefully prepared mm. or prepped I like to get there even if it's going to do someone here privately in a hotel room or something, I will get there beforehand, everything set up. So everything is where I know where it is on the table so I can tap into it, which allows me to be able to afford to do the hair quicker mm. because I know where everything is. I'm not spending half an hour looking in my bag mm. trying to find, oh, God, I need that product. Where is it? I sure. will ha hopefully have everything in front of me. Mm. And um, that, that, that allows me to be able to do my job with 
the simplicity and the ease that I think it should be. I don't, and I don't think hair should be torturous. Mm. I think hair should be a pleasure for someone, mm. you know. And, um, you know, if someone's sitting there scrambling around looking through their kit or have left their dryer at home or something's not working, you know, you've got time to reevaluate, call an assistant and say, listen, can you get me a curling iron over here? This one's something, you know what I mean? So you've covered your yeah. basic, I call it old-fashioned professionalism. Exactly, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. You know? Yeah. 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 Okay, fantastic. <laughs> well, Mr. Kerry Warner, fortunately we have run out of time. Probably talked your thing. I would, <laughs> no, I would just like to say thank you very much. It's been a great uh, pleasure thank talking you, to you. Anthony. Thank and, you very much. Uh, I know that there will be a, a lot of hairdressers out there that will listen to this, and hopefully, um, some of the, the message that you have has inspired them to, you know, to move forward and to turn their dream into some of the things that you've experienced. So, and hopefully, inspire people that are not hairdressers to become one. Exactly. You know, yeah. we need you. Cheers. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very thank much. You very much. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.